0: Hello and welcome to a special on the road episode of the Film Design Podcast. I'm presently on a feature and recording this from a small Welsh cabin, so please excuse the change from the norm. This episode excitingly features the founders of the Production Designers Collective ahead of this year's International Production Design Week. I'm your host, Max Lincoln. Mabel Weinberg is a production designer whose projects include Free Billboards Outside Ebony, Missouri, Suspiria, and The Lost Daughter. And Kalina Ivanov is a production designer whose projects include The Tender Bar, HBO's Lovecraft Country, and Grey Gardens.
1: Inbal Weinberg. I am a production designer and the co-founder of the Production Designers Collective.
2: My name is Kalina Ivanov. I'm also co-founder of the Production Designers Collective and a working production designer.
0: Yeah, so um, it's the first time we're having two people on the podcast, but it'd be amazing if you could just do a quick intro about how you got to where you are To start with Inbal. It would be great.
1: Thanks. Um, Yeah, so I grew up in Israel, and I studied fine arts um, as a child and a teenager, and was a huge movie fan at the same time. And I was just always looking for um, a position that could um, connect both. And I was very intrigued by the credit production designer when I saw it on the screen, and I just decided that is going to be my future. I made it to New York and got into the um, New York uh, Film School, New York University Film School, and uh, I just presented myself as a production designer wannabe. And from then, uh, worked on a lot of student films and had many internships, and then just started working in the industry after. And I'm still based in New York, but I work all over the U.S. and the world.
2: Um. I am from Bulgaria originally, and um, I'm a political refugee, actually, and, which means that in 1979, my parents and I uh, illegally crossed the Greek border, stayed there for six months and came to America looking for a future. And uh, I shocked my parents by telling them that I wanted to study theater design and had the luck to be accepted on a full scholarship at NYU. Uh, so I'm trained as a theater designer, as an undergraduate, uh, and then later went to film school at NYU because I fell somewhere along the road. I fell in love with with film and abandoned theater and have been living in New York and working in New York for the last 30 years uh, and um, really, really care and love production design and what we do. And uh, it's been my passion driven by great passion for the art um, of film and particularly production design.
0: So the two of you co-run the Production Designers Collective, which I'm Mm -hmm. really excited to get into. But beforehand, it'd be amazing to hear how you guys first met and how it kind of, the gestation really, where it came from.
1: Uh, Kalina, do you want to tell the origin story? <laughs> <laughs>
2: so the <laughs> the origin story, um, it's just a a, a very very um, typical in ball moment, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> because she took the initiative. She really seeked me out, actually. I was, uh, the, my our union, US, USA 829 in, in New York that represents production designers, uh, had organized uh, for me to give a lecture on the art of production design. And they, uh, an Inbal um, was the person who introduced me. And I had heard about her, but I had never met her before. And I thought that was just so charming to have another designer to volunteer to come and introduce uh, the art of a production designer Uh, and we spoke a little bit after that and it, it was our chemistry was so immediate it was literally in that moment we knew we were both driven by a passion for production design and driven by the desire of bringing designers together because the reason I say it's it's unusual is because production designers tend to stay in their own lane and they're very isolated by the nature of the job, that it's only one of us on a on movie. So we don't work with other production designers. So meeting each other is not that easy. Um, and for her to come in and volunteer and, uh, and be interested in my art... Anyway, the, the beauty of that moment was that literally it was like love at first sight in a way. And I often describe it in a very romantic terms. And I just want to make it clear that we are business partners. <laughs> but, there is, but art is all about romance, as far as I'm concerned. I'm an extremely romantic person in terms of art. And uh, so it was just, it led to us then following up with a coffee. Uh, and coming up literally sitting there for an hour or forever and coming up with idea of the production designers collective which the name was her idea by the way <laughs> so we will take it from here because <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's interesting and probably not a coincidence that we're both immigrants um, and that we have always a little bit of a different point of view on things. Um, It was really important for us that this is a really inclusive, very egalitarian um, collective where it doesn't matter where you're from, what kind of films you're working on, what is your experience level, that you are very welcome and that your input is uh, important to all. So that was something that was really lovely to connect on. And I also feel that immediately I could see in Kalina that she really does have um, the, the authentic will to connect with other designers. Because it it's, it's not to be taken for granted. You know, there is a lot of competition. and in general in the world and in the film industry. And there's a lot of insecurity and there's definitely imposter syndrome going around. So for us, you know, we put a lot of effort and time in promoting our colleagues um, and making sure that others are showing their work or speaking about their work. So it takes a specific kind of personality that is very confident in their own um, achievements and, Passion for the craft, to be able to share it so much with others. Um, yeah, and I think that was almost ten years ago. So next year we'll celebrate our our. And in the process, Max,
2: we have become such good friends, and it's so interesting to see. Just I look back and I just look at how we where we started and how how far we've gone. Just ourselves as people, and we share. A lot of conversations between us are sometimes on the difficulties that we're having on us on a film set or something. But we have such amazing um, uh, respect for each other. And we've never had a quarrel. I can't believe we've never had a quarrel. Because I think we're just driven by generosity. And we're both listeners. We like to listen to each other. And that is... I think another very good quality about creating a a production designers collective or the forum where we listen, we just give people the opportunity to talk about their passions and their craft and their art. And it's been extremely rewarding for both of us.
0: I mean, it's fantastic because it can be very lonely. Like um, the period of time, as I mentioned before we had this chat in the UK has been quite quiet lately. Um, and so I've been reaching out to other designers to kind of talk about our experiences and go for coffees and just having other people who understands the struggle and the isolation that you can have. You know, the big gaps where maybe you have to find hobbies to to stay motivated. It's It can be difficult. So it's really exciting to hear that you've had such a good long lasting friendship and work relationship.
1: Yeah, and it's beautiful to bring others. It's It's been beautiful to bring others into it because... You know, now we've really uh, created a large community of people who are enthusiastic about sharing, um, especially with emerging designers and so on. So, you know, it was our um, aim to, to just have a very informal kind of intimate vibe to our collective so that people just feel like it's a safe space.
0: Yeah, so before we ta- start talking about your, your works, how would you define the Production Designers Collective? What's the, um, and for those who'd be interested in joining, like what's the process?
1: So the Production Designers Collective is a nonprofit organization um, that represents production designers. Um, we have over 1,200 production designers from over 60 countries, um, almost all continents are represented. And we are very informal. There's no membership fees. The criteria to join is basically one feature or TV show or, um, a, series, um, or a series of uh, TV commercials. And it's important for us to create the space for conversation and sharing experiences. The way we do that is through a bi-monthly newsletter through a lot of events, both in person and um, online, and through social media. Our website has a lot of information on it, a ton of content that is written by production designers, um, resources, and so on. And uh, last year, we organized our first Production Designers Gathering, an international conference for production designers that we plan to repeat every two years. Uh, this year, our big project, which we'll talk about later, is called International Production Design Week, which will be a celebration of production design.
0: Yeah, I look forward to talking about both things and um, and mentioning the the fantastic Greece trip um, at the end of the chat. But um, yeah, to look at two very distinctive case studies: Cleaner uh, U Designs, Lovecraft Country, from the second episode onwards, if that's correct, and. Um, and in Bale, you designed the remake of Suspiria, which is very, very different and has its own kind of ways. I wanted, both of you have a very varied and extensive career, but I just wanted to choose two more genre pieces just because we could kind of compare and contrast your styles and how you develop them a bit easier. Um, so research is kind of hugely important. And both of you kind of had a starting point. With one, there was a pilot you were working off of. And then the other, there's the um, the original film, which, you know, both things you kind of move from. So, Kalina, I'd love to hear more about Lovecraft Country, how you created the the look in terms of research and development.
2: Um, well, Lovecraft Country, the unique thing about it is that it was an anthology. And so, therefore, literally not almost nothing from the pilot was going forward in terms of um, sets, uh, which was a, a really, I was in a unique position to be able to to start from scratch in in many ways. Um, my actually classmate from NYU, Howard Cummings, did the pilot, and um, he's an incredibly talented designer. And um, uh, so I we spoke very briefly uh, just to see if there was anything that specifically I had to recreate from his from the pilot. Uh, And I discovered that he had literally broken a real wall on a building to create something. And I said, well, we're just going to do it as a set in that case. We're not going to Atlanta and breaking walls. (laughs) So um, it was a very big undertaking. And what the beauty of Lovecraft Country was that it touched upon every genre it technically falls under horror, but barely, because it had musical numbers in it, it had science fiction, it, had, it went back in the past, all the way back to 1795 and all the way into the future. And so for a designer, it was an incredible um, opportunity to really play with so many looks and so many genres. And I think that had I not gone to theater uh, department and had th- theater training, where you interpret so many different um, texts and you do from Shakespeare to ballet. I don't know if I would have been prepared to be able to do that many different kinds of looks and yet give it a coherent uh, um, coherent overall look and overall design idea. So it was very, very interesting for, for me. Um,
0: So how did you create that kind of cohesive look? Like, what was the cornerstone that ran through the entire series? The
2: cornerstone, I think, it started with Gordon Parks, which they used as a, a reference in the pilot. And from there, what we agreed on, that we wanted to do an authenticity. But Gordon Parks' photographs, because he was a fashion photographer, yes, they document the lives of black people in the 50s, However, they're quite elevated and quite staged in in an interesting way. And I thought, well, this is what I am taking from from Gordon Parks' work. I want to show these people, but I want to make them bigger characters that they even realize themselves that they are. So in a sense, I wanted to give them each a mythological uh, look. And so the palette was really uh captured some of Gordon Parks's but I wanted it to be like jewel tones it was all really really rich very based in African-American art too in a sense I looked at a lot of African-American painters and there's such a richness of color that they use so for me I I saw it as an opportunity to celebrate the culture and to and to elevate the look and to make mythology and it was really um I hope we succeeded, but that's something Misha Green, the the showrunner, and I spoke at length about, and we talked about how Beyonce reinterprets Black culture. So we knew we also, even though we're going to use research, we wanted to make things uh, very relatable to a modern audience. So that was, it was a challenge, (laughs) but it was so much fun. (laughs) It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I think all of that really shows. And um, yeah, I can imagine it was really fun, especially going from space to the past. Like, yeah, really great. Um, on the topic of mythologies, to talk about Suspiria, um, it kind of it, it harks back to its own mythology of the other Argento films, but also it kind of creates a new mythology. Um, yeah, how did you create that in terms of the research? Like, what was your gestation I'd love to hear more about well, that. Well,
1: it's interesting because actually Luca Guadagnino, our director, as much as he appreciates Dario Argento and is a huge fan, he really wanted to stay away from the original and really go in a completely different direction. Um, so he, we spoke about really not taking anything from the original, really starting from scratch. And, you know, the original has very kind of wild sets and especially wild color palette. And our color palette was much more muted and very um, related to the 1970s, specifically in Berlin. Um, so I think that in a way we really um, divided the two films. And What was interesting for me is that when I read the script, the script actually contained three elements that are really close to my heart that kind of never come together. One of which is Berlin, the city. The other is the seventies and then modern dance and all of it. I'm like very knowledgeable on, and it's part of my actual life and upbringing. So I sort of knew immediately where to go for reference in a, a personal way. Um, and I put together a very, very large lookbook for the interview, um, which was a joy because these were all things that I already related to and knew where to find. And I think that that lookbook probably got me the job. And I think it was very much where Luca was visually. Um So after that, I felt like our conversations regarding research and reference were almost like a shorthand. Like we were always connecting on everything and Luca's kind of a Renaissance man and he has a lot of interesting ideas and interesting references. And so much of it, we were on the same page on and we're kind of feeding off each other. But what was always really interesting for me in retrospect is that the one difficulty I felt like we had was figuring out the kind of supernatural slash underworld elements where you can no longer go to street photography or any kind of documentation that actually exists. And you have to figure out where to go in your imagination. Um, So that I think we spent the most amount of time on and really had a difficult um, time. We, we, we connected to the real so so effortlessly that we sort of pr- progressed fast on one side and then with the underworld, we kept kind of pushing that conversation out because it was much harder. And in the end, I think we found our references in surrealism and a lot of performance art from the 70s. So that's kind of where we ended up And I really appreciated the dive into surrealist art, a lot of which I wasn't that familiar with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love the giant dresses that are kind of in the background of the of the underground sets. They're fantastic and very surreal. You kind of can't really tell what they are for some of it and then you see them again and it's 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 quite
1: thank you i appreciate that reference another thing that by by the way is absolutely not noticeable which is one of my biggest lessons about lighting is that we built two in that set we built two gigantic walls i mean over 30 foot high of hair made of hair wow. and you really can't tell at all you can tell there's interesting texture on the walls and you're wondering if that's like natural fiber but yeah it's actually women's hair so
0: so what color what color hair many was many colored was it brown we, we actually oh, wow.
1: painted uh the hair and braided it and it's different hairdos i think we worked on it for like two weeks on scaffolding <laughs> And hopefully, at one point, there will be like a behind the scenes of that, because <laughs> it's not noticeable.
0: To take the the learning point, how could you have how could you have improved on that? Was it just a conversation with the gaffer, or what? What's the lesson you could take? It from was. It?
1: A, it's very. I mean, look, I'm always uh, contemplating my projects. I'm sure Kalina does as well. Afterwards, to figure out the lessons, and it's never tragic. It's always okay. Next time I will do this differently. And so I actually enjoy analyzing what possibly didn't quite work. Um, Look, I think that in that conversation, it was very interesting because Luca didn't want any obstructions in terms of shooting. And so he really asked, uh, he demanded not to have any non-practical lighting on the set so that we wouldn't have to like... um, so that we wouldn't have to limit ourselves to where we're looking. And I completely understood his point, and in fact, I was thrilled because that really created a set that is like a real space. However, I feel like I didn't help enough with the lighting department to actually find a solution for that. I I think I sort of left it for them to figure out. I was like, look, the director asked you to do that. So just do that. I'm doing what the director asked me to do. Um, (laughs) And of course it was a wild, crazy shoot and we were all like barely surviving. And so that's when uh, you usually drop other things uh, that are not specifically your department's responsibility. But now with my experience, what I would have done is spend more time with the gaffer and the DP to think of what practical solutions we could come up with together. Because the ones that we ended up offering were obviously not good enough for me to show the full interest of that set. So, I mean, I think that's a common uh issue that production designers deal with often is lighting between practical lighting and the lighting department so you know i think it's a really valuable lesson that i learned
0: yeah i've definitely worked on some incredible sets that have very flat and boring lighting and it just completely kills it was the whole thing. Um, just to move on to lookbooks that you mentioned, uh, Kalina, I'd love to hear about you and lookbooks, like when you start on a project, um, how detailed do you do a lookbook before talking to the director for the first time? And then after talking to the director, how do you build upon yeah. the design in the lookbook? I
2: um, I find it that in the last, I would say, five to seven years, I've always had to make a lookbook if I want a particular project, and for Lovecraft, I knew I had to make one, and it's really um, it's so important to get your thoughts on on it and and discuss it with uh, in in the middle of the interview. But what's interesting about the lookbooks is you also have to have a certain amount of flexibility in it so that you can't just present one idea, because God knows what if they don't like that? You know, what if they have something? It's a discovery uh, process. So lookbooks can be really for interview process. They're a double-edged sword, you know, and so sometimes you fail, sometimes you succeed. However, I I find them very important. And literally in the last five years, I would make them for, I've gotten every job when I've made a lookbook, right? And it's because it's my initial instinct. It's very strong. I print it out and I keep it on my wall right behind me. Is the original lookbook so that I can always go back when I lose my way into a project because the budget got cut. This happens. So much happens. I can turn around and it's right there and I can go back to my initial instinct about a scene or an image and always go, oh, that's what, right. I forgot about that. So I find them incredibly important. I do a lot of presentations. I find it now also also COVID changed the business in a sense that we all got to work via email suddenly or via Zoom. So the lookbooks have become a really important tool for the production designer. And um, INBAL has such a great sense of graphics to the point, I thought she was a graphic designer, <laughs> you know, because what she what she forgot to tell you is that when we created the production designers collective, she already had the logo done, <laughs> you know, uh, and and um, she has truly inspired me to look into type and and get really much more into the graphics of things and layout of things. And, and I love them and I find them like, for example, I'll give you an example. I've, I've done two movies with George Clooney. Those are my last two movies, um, Tender Bar and an upcoming one, The Boys in the Boat. And George is an incredibly busy person because he's a humanitarian and with his wife, they do a lot for human rights and they're very, very busy. So the best, so being in the room with him, is not easy you know, because he's traveling and he's doing all this very important work. So the lookbooks are the way to get in the presentations become a really important dialogue with a director like that, you know. And so I find them incredibly useful um, and um, really an important tool.
1: Um, I agree with Kalina in that first of all, it is a bit of a double-edged sword if you bring your ideas very um, meticulously packaged into a meeting, but what I've found is if that is not where the director's at, then probably I shouldn't be making that movie. And so it's a good litmus test to where you are because where you are visually, if you're on the same length visually is crucial to the success of your relationship. And so seeing as it's very hard to know from an interview what the personalities are, the one thing you can figure out is if you are seeing the same things. Um, so I do think it's really helpful. I agree that sometimes if you're not quite sure, perhaps the script is written in a more conceptual way, then maybe it's like I in the past have brought in like, a big suitcase of books to discuss different things, maybe to just show that it's not like I have a very specific idea that I'd love to have a conversation, but these are things I've been thinking about. Um And that opens up the conversation. But another thing that I completely agree with Kalina is this kind of roadmap that those images give you. And after every project, I do this exercise of looking at, let's say, I'm at the premiere of the movie, right? Then I can go home and look at my original lookbook. And it is amazing to see, even though you've traveled such an intense road months later, so many things happened that were unexpected, that almost always my initial images relate very heavily with the final sets. Um And I also think that when you're doing the lookbooks, it is important to go a bit beyond the um, superficial research uh, layer and really try to um, encourage yourself and really push yourself outside of your research comfort zone. Um, Because perhaps you won't have those experiences, that opportunity later. Because once you start setting yourself on a path, it becomes perhaps less free. And so in doing that initial, like, what should I talk about? What is this film about? And it's just you and the mood board. It's maybe like a beautiful creative exper- uh, experiment.
0: But for those people who are less used to doing lookbooks, how many pages and how detailed would you, would you do one before a project? Like for the interview stage with a director?
2: Ooh, That's that's okay. First of all, it depends on the size of the project, right? I try to keep it to about 20 pages, uh, and I'll tell you why I don't want to give them everything, right? I want to give them a taste of what I'm thinking. It's uh, and so I find it that I keep it to about 20 pages. If I'm going beyond that, it's maybe because the project size is so big, but I think that that's enough for a discussion in an interview also. I have to tell you, our interviews used to be an hour. They're now cutting them down to half an hour. You know, so so it's kind of what motivates me to do about 20 pages. And it's not, it's not a science, but that is where I find it's my sweet spot. And then it allows me, I can always go like like in I can always bring books or anything like that. But I have just interviewed on Zoom so much in the last or Skype, or whatever, in literally in the last seven years even before COVID, that it's almost... I can't remember the last time I met somebody in person. I literally cannot. (laughs) (laughs) I used to. At the beginning of my career, I used to carry suitcases of books and torn pages from magazines. (laughs) Happy not to have that load.
0: (laughs) In terms of actually... um finding the reference images for for lookbooks and generally you know there's there's pinterest and there's great paid things like shot deck and then obviously google um what other recommendations would you have for listeners in terms of finding images
1: um i'd love to answer that but i have a quick note um on your Absolutely. last question that i think that and kalina would probably agree with me there is a bit of a complex answer to that because You are putting a lot of work into a lookbook. Um, You're doing it unpaid. And your ideas may serve whoever is seeing the lookbook while you may not get the job. Right. So there are some sensitive things to consider in terms of, I suppose, uh, your intellectual property or how much work you want to do unpaid to get a job. Um, so I think you know that's a conversation that's happening in our community um, about like do you work I often work for maybe like three days on a lookbook right or maybe a week so I think that in the past and that's what I've heard from production designers from you know that have that are older than us in the past they would be hired and then paid to do a lookbook right so it kind of It, you know, serves the narrative of how a lot of our work, you know, um, compensation has been slowly eroding. Uh, So I think that's why it's complicated to answer the question about how long it needs to be. Is it necessary to have and so on?
2: It's to that. What I'd I'd like to to clarify also is that directors have to make lookbooks, and they're very expensive. They have to like they go to the point of paying storyboard artists and graphic artists and concept artists to create entire worlds, and they may not get the job. So it's become a standard for everybody. It's not even like you know. Uh, again, as I said, if if I'm I only do this for projects that I truly, truly want to be part of, but I also don't really interview in projects I don't want to be part of, to be honest. I, I don't see any value in that, unless you're just looking for a job. But I think I think that Imbol and I share a very common uh, 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 feature that we are both very specific about what we want to interview for or what we want to do. Um, uh, and that is neither good or bad, it's just the two of us, the way we approach things, you know. Um, and our advice and our thoughts are really how we approach it. And I just want to really make sure that there's no... We're not here to tell you how to do your lookbook <laughs> or whether it should be 20 pages. I just find it like her, <laughs> that for three days, that's the maximum I can produce, that it's of good quality, you know, That's so basically.
1: I agree. And actually, you know, a lot of times in the past, I've made... Lookbooks that were more like artifacts, they're actually not PDF. They are actual either books, as Kalina said, you print them out. But I've often actually made almost props, as in, uh, for example, for um, The Perks of Be- Being a Wallflower, I actually created the diary of the main character, <laughs> that was like, you know, and the imagery went into the diary, but I had somebody write it in handwriting and, uh, it was in a trapper keeper actually. Um, and that definitely got me the job. In fact, the director, like that's all he talked about throughout our entire meeting. Um, and sometimes I, I kind of feel like, oh, this is a book I've created myself. It's like a DIY thing. And I'm, I'm giving it to the director. That's it, it's not gonna exist anywhere else. Um, That's often work. I mean, directors usually have that book like behind them on the shelf in the office at all times. So, but that's a bit of an unusual way to do it. And as I think it comes from, as Kalina said, that I only interview for things that I really, really care super deeply about. and, um, And I want to break a little bit through the traditional way of displaying images. But to your question on uh, where to research, look, I think it's a really big question. um, And actually, we discuss it often through the collective is how lazy, quote unquote, we've all become in looking for imagery. Um, Obviously, Google image search is an incredible tool. I'm so grateful it exists. However, it tends to point you to manipulated uh, paths and it also tends to be a kind of an echo chamber similarly Pinterest and and so on and it's I think not a coincidence that I've seen in for example director's lookbook the same images repeat themselves and I'm sure that happens with designers lookbooks as well it's just that I don't see other designers lookbooks and so I've been trying to break through that and of course, we always recommend people go to libraries. I know nobody does that anymore, and it is a hassle indeed. However, that's what I've been doing in the summer in preparation to me- for my next film, um, which is happening in two months, and I have the time. I literally have just been going to the public library and just going book by book in the interior design section. And I have come, come across an amazing trove of books I had no idea about, like I'm just taking them out, looking for five seconds. Like this makes sense, this doesn't make sense. I have discovered so many interior designers I didn't know about, some companies I didn't know about, amazing photos from other amazing pieces of furniture I didn't know about. So I think that's definitely my favorite way of doing it. However, when you're under stress uh, deadlines and so on, it's probably not where you're gonna find yourself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 great to have a whole combination of things, and I've definitely seen, particularly in um, uh, treatments from directors for commercials, I've definitely seen the same images multiple times, and the same with Pinterest. You can very easily get stuck down a rabbit hole for hours, and it's very hard to escape. Um, just kind of moving on to working with um, concept artists, I thought that'd be an interesting conversation to have because, uh, I don't want to necessarily get into the whole AI of it, but. Um, how do you how do you find working with concept artists? How do you express your your ideas and your your designs, especially for the kind of projects you've been working on? I'll start. Kalina, um, is,
1: the, Kalina is the expert on, <laughs> I, I want to hear what go. Kalina has to say. <laughs>
2: well, um, I, well, obviously because I'm a theater trained designer and we were, it was, our school was like like a boot camp. It, we were, we had to produce work on a schedule and everything and a lot of drawings and, and diff- every scene had to be drawn almost like a storyboard in a sense, you know, every single uh, change of a, of a set. And so it's in my nature to draw. It's just how I express myself and how I design and think. And so I always generate the first pass in black and white sketches, which I then give with the research and a complicated, another presentation to the concept artist. And there's a lot of back and forth and I have my favorites, but on Lovecraft Country, we had to do that because we were creating so many different worlds. And, um, so I have a very, it, you know, it's very interesting because I myself am using AI in concept art and uh, I am, um, you know, have mastered Midjourney or something like that. It's not enough. It's still, it's still, you have to do a lot more creative work than just sending it to AI and you're not going to get exactly what you want. But that's for a different panel. Uh, but the work, the, co- the interesting thing about the concept art is that I'm perfectly happy with a black and white sketch because I know it and I see it and I have a color palette, but it's not enough for the people above. That's where you really need the fancy concepts is because you're actually telling the studio and the executives who are so used to now to see concepts even before a director is hired, let alone a designer is hired, that it's become the language of which you can present your ideas. and it's very interesting. I'm doing a panel actually, coincidentally at the Academy, exactly about that graphics, storyboards, and concept art this 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 Saturday. And Oliver Schulk, who's a big concept artist, design production designer, talked about how people got hung up on the costumes. And I experienced this recently. Like somebody got hung up on the hat of a character. Mind you, this is for the set. But we're discussing the hat of a character. <laughs> and so it's really it it makes you it makes you notice things that you normally wouldn't notice. And it makes you really care and involve the costume designer, involve other people too, and realize that once you do these concepts, like in, like for example, in Lovecraft Country, when I did the dance number for, jo- for, for Josephine Baker, we literally created the costumes and I had to run to the costume designer and said, are you okay with this? Because she would have gotten very upset if they got approved and then she has to make these costumes. Etc. So you have to be very mindful of the fact that you're truly creating the entire world, down to lighting, down to uh, down to costumes, and so uh, it's a big responsibility. You know, if it's if it's done right, in a sense. But I absolutely love the process of it. It's a lot of back and forth, though. It's a, it's a lot of hard work.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting that you're bringing up the back and forth because what I, I don't have much experience with concept art because I tend to work on very indie realistic looking films and often you have to kind of figure out if this director is actually the right person for concept art. I completely agree with Kalina that it's it's helpful for studio heads and so on. When you're working on more indie things, it's really is it helpful for this director? Because I've worked with her, with a couple of directors where they don't they just don't see it from concept art. But if you build a white model, like a real model, then they see everything. So it's first of all a question of what is the best way to communicate visually with the director? Then what is really hard, I've found, and I'm trying to figure out better ways of doing it, is communicating with your concept artist about the actual piece of artwork. It is almost as difficult as communicating with your scenic painter about... (laughs) aging. These are very difficult conversations because the language of aesthetics is just very complex. And so then it makes me actually understand how difficult it is for directors to speak to me about what they're seeing in their head. <laughs> they don't have the tools. Um. But so what I would love to get better at is understanding the back and forth. Because for example, as opposite to that, because I have a better understanding of graphics and I actually can do a lot of graphics myself, it's so much easier for me to discuss graphics with the graphic designer. And so it's a little bit about, okay, experience that you have had so you can communicate things that you understand inherently, and then also language to use that you need to learn, which for example, VFX is a language that would all be good for us to learn even just basic concepts. So, I think that some of it is of course innate, but then some of it is a skill set that you kind of have to pick up.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think um VFX is a huge topic for designers and something I'd like to look into for for another panel. But um yeah, I mean it's fascinating especially with more and more things being computer generated um how you retain your vision as a designer i think that's extremely interesting can
2: can i can i just add something about using midjourney i just want to be very clear yeah, yeah, yeah. because what i want to be very clear about is that i like midjourney as a tool but not as a replacement for people so i go out of my way to use it in an ethical way so what i do is i use it simply to clarify my own ideas about color palette or this or that or scale and then I go from there to a concept artist and I'm very upfront about it saying, hey, I did this with my Journey, but here's what I want you to do and here's how we can develop this further. You know, so I I am not I just want to be very clear that I'm very conscientious about not cutting somebody out of a job.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm the same. I've been I've been using Midjourney as kind of like a basic starting Thing, like a conversation starter. Um, I mean, frequently it does all kinds of wacky things, <laughs> specifically about yes. ethnicity, or if you want something a certain color or finishes, it, it's wild. But um, it's a great way of expressing initial ideas, like like drawing the sketch. That's great. but um And then taking that to the concept artist, I found very, very useful. So, yeah, yeah no, that's great. Um, I'd love to talk about um, collaboration and finding your teams. Um, You know, you talked a little bit about, Imbal, about um, working with directors and taste. Um, Everyone obviously has a taste and, you know, you as a designer, you're working to the taste of a director, but you're also looking for teams that can understand your taste from the set decorator onwards. Yeah, I'd love to hear about your kind of crewing processes for both of you. Um, Imbal, if you'd like to start. Sure.
1: I think that's such an important part of the job. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how to put together the quote-unquote right crew. Um, I think that over the years I've learned that what works best for me is finding people that I think I would like to hang out with and go have dinner with and not necessarily the people that perhaps have the appropriate skills for the job. And it has always proved me right making that type of decision perhaps of how should I say it? Maybe a vibe over a skill. (laughs) And that's a really personal thing. And I think Kalina knows that about me because really being in the art department is like, how can I make more friends? Um, And I think the darker part of that is that we find ourselves in really difficult circumstances and we have meltdowns and we have like, perhaps not tantrums, but (laughs) let's say we all can find ourselves in very stressed out situations. We, I'm not saying we all do, but we can find ourselves. And so when you are faced in, with that difficulty in that moment, I feel like you need to know that your crew is behind you, that they're there to help and that they can absorb that energy and still be like positive, come up with solutions, uh, have just a kind of positive outlook, uh, problem-solving outlook. And I've been trying to figure out how you interview for that, right? Because it's not necessarily that easy to see as a portfolio review where obviously this person can draft beautifully, but what is this person's character? Um, so I've been kind of trying to figure out interview questions that could reveal a little bit how people deal with pressure, um, you know, people's emotional intelligence. Uh, which I still think is really difficult to understand in an interview. An interview tends to be like a flawed tool for picking crew. Uh, Some people just don't do well in interviews, you know, and it says nothing about their character or their work. But I also think that um, deciding on a crew is also something that is not just individually, like, this is going to be the best art director, this is going to be the best set decorator. It's like the team. Right. You have to think about the relationships between all of these people and try to put together uh, like a workplace where people will be thrilled to come into the office in the morning because they want to see all of these people or they want to sit down for lunch or they. So I think that's a very complicated part of the job. And I wish they taught that in film school. Kalina, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, I have succeeded and I have failed at, 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 at putting the crew together and um, it's a very complex process because you truly, what, 45 minutes are going to tell you what this person is really going to be in the trenches? Not really. So you can do all the checking. I mean, I've had people highly recommend it to me and then it's been a complete disaster for both of us. Um, and uh, what I really try, I actually, what I try to do in an interview explain to people what my philosophy about an art department is and see if they agree to that philosophy and insist on that philosophy, which is basically that I, cal- I want a very positive environment. I myself as an artist don't work well in a negative environment and do not ever want to create that kind of environment for other people. So it's very important for my door to be open and to listen to them and to have them come in and tell me if something is wrong before they go anywhere else. It's much better to come to me so that we can try to resolve it. I have worked in so out of town for, for five years straight um, with new crews all the time. And I find it that I approach it like this, art director and set decorator and scenic charge are the most important three positions for me. Once I hire an art director, they hire their own team. And unless I have some specific people, like I have a favorite set designer in Atlanta, or I have a seven set, uh, uh, g- graphics is also very important. But I like to trust the person I've hired to build, their, bring their own team and then the same for the for the decorator. And then I really want them, and I make a very big deal out of the fact that I want the art director and the, and the decorator to think as my, as my right hand and my left hand and not quarrel. Because I find sometimes there's a lot of animosity between these two positions. There's friction there. I don't know why, but there, there is. And I try to get them to understand that I respect them equally and an equal part of, of the process for me. And so... I also do wine and cheese. It used to be on Fridays, but now it's on Thursday. Due to the fact that everybody works remotely on Friday nowadays, (laughs) you know, and I try to do a lot of team building while we're like, I mean, for such a corporate term, but I don't know what else to tell you. I just want us, I take my lunches with my crew. I really want us to have some time to, to be together. I also encourage the PAs and everybody in my department to come and ask me about production design or if they want to know anything about the profession, this is your golden opportunity. Knock on my door, come, I'll take you to, I drag them to my sets, you know, to see them and explain what the process is, why it's this way, why this color, what, where this came from. And I just find myself by doing that and bringing and extending myself to people that I get a lot of positive given back to me. You know, and it's just uh, on my on my project that just got interrupted by the strike. I, I'm having such a wonderful time with these completely new crew for me, except for the scenic charges, an old friend of mine, um, but they're all new, and we're having a great time. And it's just, a, uh, you know, it just it's very important because also in bulk like you, you work a lot in Europe, and you find a new crew everywhere you have to go. And you have to deal in a different system, and I find it the same. I've worked in Canada. I've worked in London. Just the process of working is completely different. And you find yourself, you're a guest to that country. And so you can't come in as some general, my way or the highway, <laughs> you know, this is how I do it. At least not me. Maybe other people are very successful at that. No, so I, I, that-
1: I, I tried it, and it, no, no. No, no
2: one is successful at that. <laughs> I can tell you from experience, the general way of doing it is not it. Uh, I, 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 I'm just, I think, but, but look, you and I are community organizers, right? We're just natural community organizers. So in a sense, your art department is your community and you're organizing it and you're and, and you creating it. It's not any different than the production designers collective. It's just more intimate. And yes, you do not and i also tell tell them that i will not tolerate gossip and drama in my department i make that very clear i can be extremely nice but when it comes to malicious gossip or this that i just cut it in the like just nip it in the bud right away. Don't let it fester. It's the worst that can happen. Um, and I've learned this from some very successful producers, to be honest, of how they handle um, interdependental um, dramas and stuff like that. So you pick up skills. You watch other people how work. Look at successful producers, by the way, because in a way, production designers are producers. That's something that is very important to recognize. And so... I find myself that I'm learning a lot from successful producers.
1: I think that at times the issue is that at times art department crew isn't sure what kind of designer you are when you start out. Some designers prefer to kind of lock themselves away and concentrate mostly on the creative and not really take on the sort of day-to-day practical stuff. And so I think that probably contributes to like an early period of hesitance about what kind of workflow we're going to have or, you know, how to communicate with this boss person. Um, And so that's exactly in those early days, I think, is the crucial time to explain who you are. And as Kalina said, I think it's very helpful to sort of do a personal disclaimer even when you're interviewing crew and kind of say this is how i work some of this is actually my personality or you know these things are really important to me inside the art department so that people feel that they they can decide if they want to join this community or not
0: i think all of those are great points especially in terms of um trying to nullify the toxic gossip because um Films can very much become these small little villages of kind of warring factions. And um, it's very easy to uh, choose an enemy and kind of make everything about them. But um, fundamentally, all it's doing is kind of sucking up your own emotion and enjoyment. You know, we're here to I, I mean, we're obviously here to work, but it's an amazing privilege to work in the art department. You kind of want to have fun at least some of the time. (laughs) <laughs> That's my
2: motto. Why be in the art department yeah. if you're not going to have fun? I mean, then go somewhere else. <laughs> we're the we're yeah. the fun department.
0: <laughs> I know, right? And um, on the topic of fun, let's talk the art of budgeting. Um, I'll keep it brief because it's um, it's um a bit of a sucker of life energy, but, um, you know you're a very creative person to be a production designer but you have to do a lot of budgeting and kind of conversations with line producers and producers to kind of get yourself over the line and signed off um and there is very much an art and creativity to to budgeting um i don't know if you've got any kind of tips or any kind of thoughts and feelings on the topic but um i'd love to hear your opinions
1: i'm happy to jump in because i am uh that's kind of my wheelhouse I mean, obviously, at a certain point in your career, you no longer need to do your own budget, and you have other people to do it for you, and it's probably then uh, a relief. However, if you're still in the point of your career when you're being asked for budget, and often very early on when no one else is part of the team, um, of course, my number one advice is even if people are not officially hired right now, but let's say you're speaking to some of your crew as an art director and a set decorator, could you get the production to approve even like a half a day or something similar so that people could help you budget? Because at the end of the day, those positions are the the people that actually know how much things cost. And so trying to involve people early on in very general rough numbers, If you're only starting, I think is a very good practice. Obviously, later on, you have to budget specific sets and it's a lot more meticulous and you need the construction drawings and so on. But if you're being asked for a kind of very big um, budgeting, and also that refers to crew, crew breakdown. It's not just the budget of the sets. It's actually how much crew you need, how many days and so on. I really think that it's very worthwhile to not take it all on yourself and to consult with whoever you think will be part of your team later on if there are things that you don't think you could actually budget at the moment I think that that requires a conversation with the producers to just be very pleasantly explaining that there is no way for you to know in this moment and you're happy to have that maybe brainstorming together with the producer you know but but to be given this responsibility and then possibly setting yourself out to failing later is not a good idea. Um, But so that those are kind of, you know, general rules uh, for budgeting. And then, you know, the other thing I would say is some designers have a more logistical brain and some designers don't. And so I think it's good to recognize to yourself who you are. And if budgeting is not your forte or something that you really dislike doing, then probably you do need that set, you know, probably an art director, that second person to help you with it. Like, don't do anything that doesn't bring you joy. I mean, I, that's, I'm like very logistical and that kind of stuff brings me joy. And so at the end of the day, it's all like, one part of everything else in the art department for me so it doesn't bother me and I expressed that to my crew that all of the budgeting should go through me that I'm happy to discuss all of that Um, but then if you're a designer that doesn't want to deal with that then just be clear about that to yourself rather than doing a kind of half-baked job with it.
2: I fall exactly in that category <laughs> of the designer that absolutely does not want to budget. <laughs> I have a reputation for being very budget conscientious, by the way, which is why I have a long career. Which is, So let me just clarify it doesn't mean that I don't care about the budget or that I'm irresponsible with it. It simply means that I don't want to think about it very much. So I will never do a budget without an art director and a construction coordinator. There's just zero, there's no way. Also, when you travel, the rates are completely different. You can't do a budget. You have to know what the labor costs are in order to, versus materials. COVID changed everything when materials became very expensive. Everything is changing. And so, but also truthfully, the budget doesn't give me any joy. What gives me joy is once I speak with my, I really trust my art director on that. And once we discuss the numbers, they don't go without me uh, looking at them and discussing them. I am very happy to pitch and pitch the budget to the producers and explain my vision. And I would always come back and say, "Well, but the design is so expensive." And I would say, "Hold on a second, is it the design that is expensive, or is it uh, what is written on the page?" And here's the, and here's why. And I'm very like I'm very passionate about justifying why my design cost as much and then it's a negotiation obviously but i feel that my job is to get the producers to understand the vision of the design so they understand the numbers from that point of view versus just materials and labor so but uh, truthfully the word budget is very boring to me but it's really (laughs) necessary as i said i'm very conscientious about it i don't go over budget i just so I enjoy it and I put on on this on this particular project I literally had my graphics make me a beautiful thing calling says daydreamer and I put it on my door so if anybody starts talking to me about budget too much I go like what does it say on my door daydreamer that's what <laughs> I do and I fiercely defend my position as an artist as a daydreamer and not as an accountant so there you have it <laughs>
1: I think Kalina brings up a good point of discussing the budget with the producers, because that can be, especially if you're just starting out, that can be a source of a lot of stress and tension to you in preparing for that meeting. And unfortunately often, one of the first thing that happens when you start a job is you're being either asked for a budget or being given a budget, which is a bit of an aggressive conceptual move as your first relationship gesture um, with a producer. So sometimes the budget creates this rift of like an us versus them. And what I've learned from working on my larger projects is um, the civil tone of the conversation over budget. Because if you're working for a studio or you know a TV station, obviously they have deep pockets And so, yes, they're going to try to conserve every cent, but there is a somewhat of a different tone to the conversation in that, okay, this is a game. We're going to have something to say. You'll have something to say. And in the end, we'll figure it out. And somehow on the indie films, uh, or, you know, just films that really have super tight budgets, the conversation is so fraught and tends to end up in a personal place where you feel their responsibility. Um, and so I would love to actually import that tone, export, I suppose, that civil tone to all conversations about budget, regardless of where you're at, what the actual budget is and the the complications between the two sides.
0: Yeah, it shouldn't feel like a personal attack if you're over budget by... 10% or whatever it is it's you you know as kalina said you're trying to create the script you're not you're not doing more than that
2: and the other thing what i'd like to add to that is i'm always very willing to cut a set i really mm. they're not they're not in, i mean if you don't, and I always tell producers, if you really don't have the money for this, let, let's cut this scene. Let's go to the writers and let's do this instead. And I would not just say, cut it, and I'm not being controversial. I would have a creative solution for it. I would have a, a, a constructive solution, saying, Why do we have three bars in this? Can't the characters meet in one bar? Why are we going to three places? That's just an example. But I come in prepared with a lot of cuts. If and 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 you have to be strategic not all sets are equally important. So put your money into the ones that are really telling something that are critical to the story. And then try to cut the ones that are not, that are not moving the visual narrative forward and the story forward. And you wouldn't, you know, people, writers overwrite sometimes locations and stuff. You know, they really do because they think that it's, oh, it's going to be a bigger scope if I have 45 locations. Well, you know, The story being told in 35 locations is probably better than in 45, particularly on the indie when you don't have money. But even on the big ones, just save you money and put it in where it's really going, you're going to shine and it's really important to the story. So I'm pretty strategic in these conversations. As much as I say I'm a daydreamer, I do have a logistical brain, I just rather turn it off and just dream. I mean, it's just really what I want to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just some strategic daydream. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd love to quickly touch on um, working abroad. Like both of you have done extensive working abroad. Um, I guess uh, rather than talking about the practicalities of it, um, I'd love to talk more about the personal if you're okay with that. Like how do you stay sane being away from families and loved ones for such a long period of time? Like um, I'm sure there are challenges. I'd just love to know if you've got any tips and tricks for working away from home.
1: I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. That's my mode. I mean, in a way, you're right. You definitely give yourself an extra set of challenges by working abroad. I mean, sometimes you don't even understand the language and you're not sleeping in your own bed. So there's little moments in the day that are like huge challenges, literally like, filling up the tank of your car or buying groceries and um, let alone not having your loved ones nearby and not having your creature comforts, you know, from home. Um, however, in a much more bigger picture way, I feel like that's how you stay like real, you know, like <laughs> the, the more comfortable we are in life, the less challenges we take on ourselves, the less risks and, you know, how will we stay creative? So I kind of enjoy the or I remind myself why I take that on in difficult moments. It's like, yeah, because adventure is the, the thing of life, you know, and how will we keep changing and keep being like cutting edge and know all these new things like this is the way to do it to push yourself out of your own comfort zone. That's my mantra to myself when I break down crying at the gas station for not knowing the Italian <laughs> word for driver's license. Um, <laughs> but but uh, to answer to that, I think that um, general rule of thumb that's really hard to follow is uh, find your own boundaries between work and your pastime. And know that because you're in a different New country. It's actually extra important that you enjoy where you're at, and you get to really like live out the experience of being somewhere else. So, find the time where you need to leave work, and you are going to go on a walk around your new neighborhood, or that the weekends are absolutely work-free, and that you get to explore. Um, Those. That's obviously easier said than done but often we're like um, bands on tour, you know? Oh yeah, sure, I lived in wherever, Rome for a few months, but I didn't really get to know it. And so that's even sadder than being home and being a workaholic. Uh, So to me, that's probably the uh, advice is recognize that this is an amazing opportunity. And so therefore maybe cut back a little bit so that you have a better balance with your out of work exploring.
2: I, I come from a small country, so I love traveling. I've like, you know, and also just coming from a communist country, we weren't even allowed to travel. So traveling has been my passion. And so I look for this opportunity. So I actually love working outside of my of my zone, I've been, uh, you know, and so uh, like in Baldo, I keep my weekend very much private and for exploring any kind of museum or any kind of cultural thing. And I really, really, if you're in Europe, it's so easy to travel to other places too. And so it's, for me, it's a luxury to be abroad actually in that sense, but it is, it, it, and, and the challenge of learning somebody else's way of working is also interesting because it makes you get outside of the way you normally think. And sometimes that's a very good thing. Being Keeping you on your toes is always a very good thing because you are not going to get lazy in a way, and you're not going to go to your regular solutions, and you may find different ways of doing things, and it may make the project richer. So I look at it completely from a very positive way of life and uh, I really like it. And then my husband gets to come and visit me. So there, there you go. <laughs> Good for everyone.
1: <laughs> I found, um, you know, I had this realization over COVID in the first months where we were really locked down that we were all connecting all the time, virtually on the phone. And it kind of, set, for me, sank in how easy it is to really keep in touch and made me realize that all of my disappearing on my family and friends for six months on a project is more my own doing than actual technology. And so um, I worked on The Lost Daughter uh, in the deep, deep pandemic, like we were one of the first films to get started. And so I all of a sudden found myself on a small Greek island. And I actually made a point to continue this sort of level of connection with friends and family that I established in the first weeks of the pandemic. Obviously, it was still a really difficult time for in the world, and I wanted to continue to share my experiences. So I feel like on that project, I really did stay more connected um, to the people that know me best, which I think is a, is a great way to do it because as much as we'd like to believe that all of the crew and the new people we meet are like our lifelong new friends, sometimes you just finish the film and you'll never see these people again. So maintaining the relationships that really are dear to you, uh, even though it's difficult in the moment, like maybe you had a really difficult day on set, you're completely emotionally exhausted and you're like, oh, I can't speak to anyone. It's literally like just press the button that says dad and just go with it, you know, like just ask someone on WhatsApp if they're there. Um, I think it's definitely worth it in the long while.
0: Yeah, I think that's all great advice. Um, I guess for my last question about um, work stuff is I always like to ask um, people I speak to about what they look for in assistance.
2: <laughs> um, be curious. I look for people to ask me questions and be part of the creative process, be open and positive. I really, that's, that's what I look for. Oh, and sense of humor is incredibly important to me in the art department, I think. Because that's how we overcome any kind of difficulties. We should be able to laugh about it at the end of the day. You know, no matter what happened, this, that, whatever, the budget got cut, etc. Um, we should be able to have a big laugh at, at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, enthusiasm um, enthusiasm, and positivity is, are so important. Um, to see that somebody has a passion for the craft or just the media of film um, always sort of bonds us. And then a kind of uh, go with the flow, like rolling with it. Uh, sure, yeah, of course, I'll do that. You know, the like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll do that, even if it's a kind of crazy suggestion, that vibe. Um, that's usually it. I don't ever even look at their resume. <laughs> it's not really that much about resume in terms of like where you went to school or what you're. I mean, of course, if you had other jobs and I may know the designers, then probably that's good information for me, but I think it's mostly about the attitude.
0: For years, the camera department's been going and getting smashed once a year and celebrating all things camera. Um, but I went, I had the honor of going to the very first production designers gathering, which both of you created in Greece last year, which to compare to camera image was uh, lots of red wine in a beautiful Greek islands and long conversations. There was yoga on the beach um, or seaside. Um, I found myself next to absolute titan designers doing some drawings. My sketch was terrible, but it was it was amazing being next to them. But um, yeah, so I'd love to hear more about the gathering you created, and and particularly this year you're doing the International Production Design Week, which is what brought us to this chat. So yeah, if you'd like to give a bit about those, great.
1: Yeah, I'll start with my um, sort of initial idea. For The Gathering, I think that, you know, it's been my fantasy for since forever um, to have something like a festival for designers, a real conference for designers. It's interesting that in our industry, sure, there is a ton of film festivals and maybe there are some trade shows, but actually conference like professional development conferences uh, for crew members uh, are very rare. So... That was always on my mind, and I kind of thought that I'd have to retire and then do it because it's a full-time job, so it was like a good second career. Um, But, you know, I think that when COVID hit, it sort of got me to change my priorities um, about things I really cared about, and I just thought, why wait? Let's do it now. So that's where it started. Thankfully, Kalina has always been super supportive. And I remember actually the moment I pitched her the idea of the Greek island and her, her eyes just lit up. And I was like, Oh yeah, we're on. We're on. Um, and you know, it was definitely a difficult, uh, job putting it together because it was unprecedented and we had to kind of, you know, uh, persuade people that this is a good idea, that everyone will just show up in Athens and then get on a sailing boat and will just sail away to an island. In retrospect, I'm shocked that so many people said yes and such incredible key speakers. Um, and I mean, Kalina can uh, attest to this, but the gratitude that we received after this event was bigger than any film accomplishment I've ever had, you know, like the amount of beautiful gestures and goodwill and just, you know, people really felt like it changed their lives. And so I'm like, so basically the event was so successful way beyond our expectations. And it got us to understand the need for this Type of deep connection in, among our community, um, and I'll let Kalina tell you a bit more. And afterwards, we can speak about the the week.
2: <laughs> I really, uh, it's it's the. Ballis was the real. She had to convince me to do this because I never wanted us to become a nonprofit. Uh, but it was it took us both going to Camera Image and, and seeing this what cinematographers did and took us also to realize that we did not want to make a festival and and something we both agree on is we never want to give awards we never want to judge we we are not ever going to be in a position of being judges. And so in that conversation, oh, remember, we ran, we couldn't find a restaurant open. Like we literally ran throughout the entire town. There was nowhere to eat. We finally found one place in Poland that was open at 11 o'clock. So we sat down and ate. And in that conversation, we, we started discussing how we're going to do this. Did, absolutely, we should do it. This is what we're going to do. And then where should it be? And there was two ideas. Remember, it was, do we do it in New York on the Hudson River somewhere? Or do, and then she said, Greece. And that's when my eyes went, yes, we're going to Greece. Everybody will come to Greece. (laughs) And and then we work our butts off. But I mean, it's really the heavy lifting falls on on Inbal's shoulders. I really want to stress that because I was in the middle of my English movie with, and and She shouldered so much of the work um, and uh, my hat goes off to her, you know.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that. And you know, the, the, the whole idea of being somewhere small like upstate or Greece on a Greek island was that we really wanted to keep it a very intimate affair and a safe place for people to share, even difficult experiences that they've had and sort of have it a bit more of a retreat then if you do it in a big city and people have other things to do, they just leave and do it. You know, we had communal dinners. We had walks on, as you mentioned, like yoga, walks in the woods, and so on. And I think we realized how important that type of intimacy is, and that is why we're going to repeat the event. But interestingly, when we returned, after we had like the vast majority of people Um, suggested that we keep the event that small and that's how we should repeat it, then we thought, okay, well, but we want to be very, very inclusive and we want to welcome so many other uh, positions into our world. How do we do that if the gathering stays small? And that's what led to our idea for International Production Design Week, which we are doing this year for the first time. And that is, let's keep it let's suggest an event as open as possible with the most amount of possibilities to interact and collaborate so that it's basically a grassroots open call to anyone that loves production design to just engage, put together an event, get in touch with us, uh, coordinate. And so we've been working with production design organizations around the world to put together a program in many different countries Um, that will be a lot more accessible both to designers, but then also the general public and other industry members so that we can um, really welcome people into our creative process.
0: I look forward to seeing how you guys develop this and other future projects. Um, Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the, the show and all the best for this and all the future endeavors.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.
0: The show's intro was composed by Sam McGrail, mixed by Max Bloom, and the artwork was created by Anna Jagajinsky.